You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. When we think of the Apostle Peter, we usually remember the moment when he went from fishing in the water to walking on water. During his life, this extrovert of an apostle had his fair share of setbacks and comebacks, but nothing compared to his comeback from a reputation setback. How did Peter come back from a bad reputation? This is the true comeback story of Peter. Good morning. Okay, can you believe this? I know uh, Pastor Richard talked about is summer over. I'm holding out as long as possible, as long as possible, because February is coming. Forget Christmas, Natalie. February's coming, so enjoy the rest of your summer. But we're already nine weeks into this comeback series. Nine weeks already. Now, this week, we're going to do something special. We're looking at the life of the Apostle Peter, and in particular, a moment where his reputation had a catastrophic meltdown and setback. How do you come back from a moment when you've lost your reputation? What do you do with that? Well, uh, before we get there, I just want to ask you, whether you're online or in the room, I want to ask you this question. What's your reputation like? What's your reputation? Oh, someone said good. Good. Glad. Bad? Is it surging forward or is it receding? Where's your reputation at? I'm going to share with you six quick truths about a reputation that I wish I knew when I was younger. I wish I had known these things when I was younger. If you're younger in this room, you might want to take some notes today because I think it'll be helpful as you move forward or even if you're online. The first truth is pretty easy, pretty obvious. It's that everyone has one of these. Listen, parents, your two-year-old has a reputation. Your two-year-old could be a biter or a cuddler. Who knows, but they have a reputation. Your 16-year-old has a reputation. You have a reputation. Everyone does. A reputation is made up of the opinions and beliefs of others as they witness your decisions, your actions, your behaviors, and your choices. And they take all of that and they decide and they make a reputation for you. Here's what uh, Abraham Lincoln said about reputation. He said, character is like a tree and a reputation like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of it, The tree is the real thing. In other words, every one of us, our lives cast a shadow. It's our reputation. It's what people see. And sometimes, have you noticed, depending on the time of day, your shadow could be small or it could be long, depending on where the sun is? Simple lesson. You go outside, you'll see it's true. And it's true with your reputation. Sometimes reputations are easily distorted because people see us in a really good moment and they overestimate us. Or they see us in a really bad moment and they underestimate our reputation because people are taking snapshots at you over time. So we all have a reputation. That's truth number one. Truth number two is simply this. Your reputation is constantly under construction. Today, you are working on your reputation. Today, people are forming a reputational mindset about who you are. We're always constructing it. And sometimes as we age, we forget because we're resting on our laurels, to borrow that old term. We're resting over past victories or past performances, and we forget. Every day's a new day. The reputation is either moving forward or it's retreating. Now, 
Why you need to know that it's always under construction is, I want to speak to those that are younger in this room, because I see it in our culture all the time. It's amazing how people will build a reputation for and with a people that ultimately their opinion doesn't even matter. I watch it all the time. That people will build a reputation with individuals that aren't even invested in their success, their future, that, that, in their lives. So people will build virtual reputations and spend a lot of time on that more than they do the physical reputation and at their present address and where they live. Be careful who you're building a reputation for. Be careful, be careful what group you're building a reputation with. But you are building one. Everyone has one. It's always under construction. Truth number three is simply this. You build your reputation, your reputation through repetition. It's the things that we do over time. It's your habits, your behaviors. It's the lion's share of the work. It's those choices you make that are habitual. Those repetition areas builds a reputation. In other words, do you have, an honest, do you have a reputation of being honest? Well, that's not formed on one moment. That's not formed because 12 times out of 13 you're dishonest, but you're honest once. Well, that doesn't give you an honest reputation. It's a cumulative work. And here's the good news. You don't have to be perfect. What you need to do is be more honest than not. And here's what the thing with honesty, if you're going to build a reputation of being honest, is honesty is displayed best when it's advantageous for you to be honest and when it's disadvantageous for you to be honest. That's when people form a reputation of being an honest person. It's cumulative. It's your patterns and behaviors that you repeat. And those repeated things become your reputation. Here's the fourth truth. The fourth truth is simply this. Your, your reputation can be taken away from you. It's never been easier in our culture than today to lose your reputation. Never been easier. You can have it taken away from you in a moment. One pastor said this recently, I thought it was so good. He said this, we live in a world that doesn't know the difference between a rumor and a reputation anymore. Rumors are so easy to start in this world. I remember when I was a, a younger pastor and I was pastoring in a church that was uh, going through, uh, it had been going through some decline. It was just struggling. And so they asked me to come and, and change their future. But they were just like me when I arrived. I realized they're like me and like you. I love change without having to, right, without having to change. I love the outcomes to change without having to change anything. But in this church, it was in decline, and we worked at it, and we changed a lot of things, and all of a sudden, we began to reach a lot, new, a lot of new people. But you know what I noticed? One day, I got an email from one of the members in that church, and they said, Pastor, someone just sent this to me. And it was a diatribe, and it was about me. It was all about me. And it was all these rumors and things, and I, I'm reading it, and I'm going, boy, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. It was fascinating, but you know what I was? Ticked. I was angry. What? You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to get up and defend my reputation. Have you ever felt like that? Someone's taking a run at your reputation, and you want to get up there and you say, okay, let's go. Okay, just me today. I don't know why it's just me today. Here's the thing I learned, though. I learned such a valuable lesson that time. I learned this. That if you're going to go around defending your reputation, 
you're going to become a very angry person. And I learned something more valuable than defending your reputation. Don't protect your reputation. Give up your reputation. Don't protect your reputation. Protect your integrity. Because that is what's at stake. Protect your integrity. Keep that safe. Because we want to live an integrated life. King David gives this great example. He was under attack. People were attacking his reputation. And he said this. May my integrity and honesty, can you say it with me? Protect me. For I put my hope in you. Can you say this out loud with me? Let's say this verse again. May integrity and honesty protect me, for I put my hope in you. See, we have often an ability that our reputation can be taken from us because we're struggling living a life of integrity. Here's what I mean. Some of us, we suffer with multiple reputation disorder. Do you ever have that? Do you ever hear that? I made it up this week, so I want the rights to that. No. Multiple reputation disorder. Here's what I mean. You've seen it. You've done it. I've done it. I've seen it. Many of us, we have a church reputation. In the church I grew up when I was little, I knew how to get a good church reputation. See, I was just a little guy. But I noticed that the people had the big Bibles. Big Bibles were better Bibles. It probably meant that there were study, and then if it looked like you'd been using it too, that was even better. If it came pristine and wrapped in plastic, uh, no. It, it had to be well used, and so you get a good church reputation from a big Bible by, by the way you dressed. If you dressed the right way, you get a better church reputation. If you worshiped, if you participated, you could build this great big church reputation. I remember going home with one of my friends from church one day, and I realized, because his dad had a great church reputation, but I realized that he had a different home reputation. That I think the family wished this guy would come home with them. Because this guy was not that guy. They were different places. They had a different reputation at home. It was a very different person there. And then, then I've noticed over the years that some people have a great church reputation, but, but they... At work, they're a nasty bit of work. You ever meet someone? I mean, at work, you're just like, you find out they're a Christian in their church, and you're like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? That uh, doesn't add up. Because they've got three reputations going. They have a church one. They have a home one. They have a work one. And this was me when I was younger. Man. Oh, this was the hardest one for me. I had a with my friends reputation. And with my friend's reputation, I held on to values and things in life that I would never dare bring here. My parents were in the last service, so <laughs> I wouldn't have brought them home, and it, certainly none of those values would have showed up here. Here's the problem when you live your life that way. You don't, when your reputations aren't integrated, you lack integrity. Integrity means an integrated life. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're not. This side of heaven, you and I are not perfect. Jesus is. But I know this. To live a life in integrity means that who I am here is very similar to who I am here. Is very similar to who I'm, I, I am here and here. These becomes, this becomes an integrated life. So here's a big question. Something for you to ponder this week. You might want to write this down if you're online. You might want to take a snapshot of this. But this is a question I would beg you to listen to and ask the Holy Spirit to help you with this question this week. It's this. 
I wonder how big the gap is between your reality and your reputation. It's never been easier to project a false reputation. What's the gap between your reputation and the real you? Because that gap is where integrity lurks. That gap is how people lose their reputation. That's how people are able to take your reputation from you. Here's the fifth truth. The fifth one is simply this. You can give your reputation away. And here we get to the Apostle Peter finally. One of the hardest lessons I've learned, I learned it from a much older man who told me this one day, and I've learned it over time because I've had a first row seat to watch a lot of catastrophes in people's lives. I've just been able to see it. A lot of poor choices in people's lives. Here's what I learned. It takes a lifetime. It is hard work. It takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, and it takes one moment to lose it all. It's so, it's not fair, but it's true. It takes a lifetime of building a great reputation, and it takes a moment to lose it all. And this is what happened to the Apostle Peter. Let me tell you his reputation. You probably know something of him unless you're new. Maybe you're not sure who he is. Let me build a little caricature as to who the Apostle Peter was and his, his reputation. You know, the Apostle Peter had a reputation of being a hard worker. He was a hard worker. He, he was a fisherman. Long before he met Jesus, he was a bootstrapper, an entrepreneur. He worked hard. And when you read the accounts in the New Testament, you realize he kept a pretty phonetic pace. He was not afraid of hard work. When people saw Peter, they said, there's a hardworking man. That was part of his reputation. That was a part of who he was. You know, Peter was also a, a leader. He was a leader. I, and when you read the Gospels, you'll notice Whenever it lists the disciples, Peter's always listed first. There's a reason. Because his peers saw him as a leader. Peter was a leader. Later in the gospel, Jesus would say, uh, I, who do you say I am? And Peter would say the incredible confession. He'd say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus would point to him and said, upon you I will build this church. You will be a leader so when people saw Peter, they saw a hard-working leader. They, they saw someone who was faithful. He was faithful. He had this sincere and genuine connection with Jesus, devotion to him. In fact, you see it played out in the Gospels again. He, among a couple of other disciples, were often in Jesus' inner circle. He brought them close because of their faithfulness. They went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, met with Moses and Elijah, all in this intimate circle because Peter was seen by that group and others as being hardworking leader who was faithful. Peter wasn't just that. Peter was also a man of integrity. You know, it, it's funny when you read Peter's life. You realize he kind of says what he thinks a lot of the time, even if it's detrimental to him. Because he lived a very sincere and genuine life. He wasn't trying to hide things. He was very open. He would have been seen as a man of integrity, a leader, hardworking, faithful. Uh, he was courageous. I mean, you got to give Peter that, right? He was seen as courageous. I mean, who's the first one out of the boat? Who, oh, correction. Who was the only one out of the boat that walked on water? Peter. 
When they came to arrest Jesus and they're coming at him, he pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the men who are trying to arrest him. Why? He is courageous. You're not going to do that to my Lord. I mean, courage that man had. He was also extremely confident. You can see it in the Gospels. It's funny, in the account we're about to look at, it's, it's in every gospel, Matthew 26 part of it, uh, it's Jesus talking to his disciples and they're saying, it, beautiful interaction, but Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. He says, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified there. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter, first one that speaks up, usual. Peter says, no, 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 God, that's not going to happen. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. When the, when the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's words are amazing. Peter says this, though all of these, who are the these? The rest of the disciples that are in the room with him. <laughs> you know, this is not like they're in the other room somewhere. You know those guys? No, it's his friends. He says, though all of these may betray you, though all of these may desert you, I won't. I will die for you. I will go to prison for you. He's so confident in his courage. And it's on display here. He's so confident that he's saying, listen, I'm not going to be like the rest of these guys. I'm not even like them. But if you know the story, Jesus is arrested. And he's taken to the high priest's home to be interrogated. And Peter, the rest of the disciples scattered. Peter follows closely behind them. And he finds himself outside in the court of the high priest's house, and he's nestled around a fire with other soldiers and other people. Somebody says, hey, aren't you that guy with Jesus? No, 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 that's not me. I get mistaken for him a lot. No, I don't look like him. Someone else said, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I follow Jesus on Instagram, and I'm sure I saw you in one of his posts. And he said, no, not me, not me. And then a young girl comes to him and says, I, I recognize your accent. <laughs> I know you, you're a follower of Jesus. No. And in Luke chapter 22 in the account, it says that as Peter denied him a third time, Jesus is exiting the house of the high priest under escort. And he locks eyes with Peter. And the roast, rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would happen. And in the text, it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly, bitterly. Peter's reputation, leader, courageous, faithful, confident, hardworking. In one moment, it all came undone. In one moment, his words meant nothing. They meant nothing. In one moment, everything he had built seemed to come apart. He was seen for who he was, a coward, a liar, no integrity at all. And Peter knows it. He knows it. You see, all the disciples may have deserted him, but Peter, man, he stayed close enough to make sure he could deny him, lie, chicken out in that moment. Leader? What type of leader does that? Who's going to follow him? Who's going to follow him now? You could try to piece it back together, but, but who's going to follow him now? See, his career is over. 
It's ruined. His confidence is ruined. And his reputation is ruined. But there's a sixth truth. And the sixth truth is this. Thank God for it. Everyone's reputation can be repaired. Yours, mine, and Peter's. See, maybe you're in a setback. Maybe, maybe not everything's tumbled, but a lot of it's tumbled. Maybe you made a bad moral choice and it's haunting you to this day. Maybe you've made some bad decisions, said some bad words at bad time, and you've had bad arguments, you've made bad judgment calls, and either way, your reputation has taken a severe hit. Maybe it's in one of those quadrants. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's at church. Maybe it's with your friends. Maybe it's at work. But either way, your reputation is in a setback. How do you move forward from there? Well, thank God that Jesus is a reputational surgeon. See, you know, if your reputation is built by repetition, here's a big truth for you. Your reputation is repaired through repentance. Now, nobody leave. Because you just heard a preacher use the R word. And you know repentance. Sometimes it, wherever you've grown up or however you've grown up, sometimes that word is meant to feel bad. And you already feel bad enough. I would like to reframe that word because it's the pathway forward for all of us who are in a setback. I'd like to reframe that word. When you hear the word repentance, think of freedom. Freedom from what controls you. Freedom so God can be in control. Freedom so you are no longer owned by things that you cannot control. That's the pathway forward. So if you have a Bible, here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. John chapter 21. You can jump on our Wi-Fi. You can Google it. Or you can, if you have a paper copy, pull it out. John chapter 21. Here's what's happened. Jesus has died. He's risen from the grave. But the disciples, they've left Jerusalem. They're back in Galilee. And they went back to what they knew to do. They were back and fishing. And in the account, in chapter 21, Jesus is on the shore. The risen Christ is on the shore. The men are, are the disciples are fishing off of the shore. And he yells out to them, hey, fellas, you catch any fish? One of them yells back, not a bite. And he says, well, throw your nets down on the other side of the boat. Very familiar to another account in the Gospels. And they do, and they pull in an enormous load of fish. And then John, the Apostle John, recognizes. He says, guys, guys, that's Jesus and Peter jumps over the bow of the boat, first one in the water, but he's not walking on water this time. He's swimming, getting as close as he can to Jesus. And Jesus has built this fire, and he's feeding them breakfast. He's going to feed them breakfast. And we pick up in the 15th verse of chapter 21, Jesus begins to speak, and he turns to Peter, and he says, Simon, which was his name before Peter, Simon, son of John, this is really important, this question. Do you love me more than these? Do you remember back in Matthew 26? Oh, uh, man, these may desert you, but I won't. And Jesus looks at the other disciples that are gathered around in that moment, and he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know I love you. He doesn't say, I love you more than these. He says, you know I love you. He's been humbled now. Th then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. 
Verse 16, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And then in verse 17, it says, a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this is really important. It says that Peter was the Greek word that John uses, which the New Testament was originally written in, means to mourn and to grieve. It means he felt like he had lost a loved one. And it says that Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said again, then feed my sheep. How do you repair? Well, it's all there in chapter 21. What does repentance look like? How does a comeback take shape? Well, a comeback starts by wanting a comeback. You need to be open to having a reputational comeback. Now, before you say, well, who wouldn't be open to it? By open, I mean you need to take responsibility for the setback. See, repentance, this is, you know, many times we don't know what repentance even means. Repentance means you take responsibility for where you are in the setback. It's interesting, in this thing, Jesus is a surgeon, and he cuts open Peter to get the poison out. Notice what he does. Peter, you denied me three times in front of a group of people around a fire. Now we have a group of people around a fire. I'm not going to ask you three times, do you love me? What is he doing here? Is he rubbing Peter's nose in it? Is he being insensitive? No, 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 no. He's trying to get Peter to take responsibility for why he is where he's at. See, really, repentance begins when blame shifting ends. You can't repent of something and blame someone else for why you did something. Repentance begins when blame shifting ends. Don't worry, gut friends, there's good news here. This is really good for us. This is pretty simple, but it's pretty important. You can't start a comeback unless you're willing to take responsibility. You can't blame someone else if you're going to own it. I was thinking about it this week. Because I grew up on the East Coast, and uh, I think I was 19. I was trying to remember how old I was when I, when I did this summer job to get money for college. I was trying to get money, you know, and I needed money for college. And I, I thought, what's a job that'll pay me some good money? And in New Brunswick, there's a lot of trees, a lot of trees. So I thought, I'm going to go and cut wood in the trees, pulp wood. So, you know, trees. So I went uh, chainsawing, getting bitten by hornets and all kinds of stuff. And you would have to drag some of these logs out. And there's two ways to do it. One is you put the, the log on your shoulder and you pull it out. Now, the problem is it's really hard to control a log this way because it's bouncing around in the back and it'll shift its weight and it's really hard to pull it. But I watched some of the more seasoned guys and they would try to get it fully on their shoulder and get the log off the ground so the whole weight was on their shoulder and then you can control it very easily. Friends, that's the key to guilt. You need to take the full weight on yourself if you're going to control the outcome. See, it's no good saying, yeah, I did that. That was so wrong. But, but if you were married to her, or I, I did that was so wrong, but if you knew the family I grew up in, if you knew the circumstances, 
I, yeah, you know what? I shouldn't have done that, but he, but she. Every time you use a but, part of the log is still on the ground. It's still hard to control. You can't control it there. Some of this is, it's not saying you own something you shouldn't own. It's like this. If you've been, I was so mistreated at work. I was mistreated at work, but I'm miserable because of my response to how I was mistreated at work. As long as it's work is the victim, you're, you're always the victim. And this is why it's so difficult to get the first step of repentance in our culture right now. Because if you want people to say, you're okay. I mean, you just, you can't help the way you feel. You can't help the things you do. You, it has never been easier to be a victim and not become free. And unless you own it, and this is the first step, and Jesus is taking Peter right back to the scene of the crime, and he wants him to feel the weight of the responsibility. Because listen, friends, a diminished level of responsibility will always diminish your reputation. How many times do we see politicians in culture, and they're unwilling to accept the blame? I, you know, it's, I, I never think I've seen a season where politicians are able and some more than others, and all they do is point to everyone else that's wrong. They're why this. They're why this. Immigrants are why this. this uh, and they're blaming everyone for where they're at. Where does your respect level go for people like that? And you know what it's like when you meet that rare person in culture and society who says, you know what? This is my fault. Where does your respect level go for them? Mine always goes up. Wow, what strength to be able to own something. Your comeback starts when the blame shifting ends. Friends, thank God that's not the only step because if that was the only step, it might be a little depressing. I mean, I grew up in a church. I know how to feel bad. I know how to feel guilty. And some of us, with repentance, that's all we know about it, is just feeling bad. Jesus never leaves us like that. He doesn't leave us in disarray where we say, okay, I'm the reason I'm in this place. There's more to it. There's a second step to repentance, and it's this. You have to identify the root of your setback. You have to go to, okay, again, go back to John 21. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never deals with any of Peter's behavior? Peter denied and lied. Peter was a liar and a cowardice when it really counted. And what's interesting is Jesus never mentions it, never once to him. Why? Because Jesus knows those are just the symptoms. Those behaviors are just the symptoms of a deeper root and a deeper problem in Peter's life. See, Jesus could have said to Peter, right around that fire with all the disciples, could have said, hey, Peter, do you promise never to deny me again? Peter would have said, yes, Jesus, you know what? I'll never deny you again. Peter, do you promise you'll never lie again? And Peter would, of course, because he's feeling bad, would have said, I'll never, ever, ever, ever lie again. But you know, Peter will deny and lie again. Because that's not the real problem in his life. The real problem is much deeper, and Jesus pulls it out of him. Those are symptoms of a bigger problem in his life. When Jesus says this question, it would have gone through Peter like a knife. Peter, do you love me more than these? See, he's getting to the heart of where Peter's real problem is. He lied and denied because of his own competitiveness and pride. 
Peter thought he was better than those other guys. Peter thought he was special. We like to think maybe it's courage that made him the first one out of the boat. Maybe it was competitiveness. Getting ahead of the others. There was something in Peter that said, look at me a lot of the times. And there was a deeper root in his life, and it was pride. And whenever we give in to those deeper roots, they marginalize God's influence in our life. I've seen this in people over the years. I, I, I heard this story, I read this story, I thought it was fascinating, about a woman who was really hurt at work, mistreated by her boss at work, and years later, she can't forgive him. She's tried, because she's a Christian, and Christians should forgive, correct? The answer is yes. And, 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 and he's trying to, she trying, but she can't forgive. And she goes to find a Christian counselor. I can't forgive this guy. He hurt me. He, he ruined my career path. I was doing this. And a revelation came to her as she began to work this through with the counselor. She realized in that moment, the reason why she can't forgive him, and she's trying, is because he got in the way of what she really loved. Her career. And the way it made her feel successful. See, in her own words, I loved it. I am bitter and angry, but at a deeper level, I am rebellious. I didn't want God at the center. I am so angry and mad at this man because he got in the way of my first love, my work. And the moment you identify what the root is, you're able to deal with the root and not the symptoms. It's so embarrassing. This has been a part of my life for years. I know this. I have a tendency to worry. And I worry about my kids. I worry about the future. I worry about all this stuff. And at one level, it sounds very, really noble. And it sounds normal. Who doesn't worry? But the Bible says worry is a sin. Now, not when you were dealing with anxiety disorders and stuff like that, but, but worry is a sin. And in a moment of honesty, I had to ask myself, why do I worry? And it was terrible what I knew. I worried because I didn't really trust God. I didn't. I didn't trust that he had my best interests in mind. I didn't trust that I could trust him with the outcomes of my life. So you know what I had to do? I felt like by worrying, somehow I could control God and I could control those outcomes. See, the root, worry was just a behavior. The root was a problem of trusting God, which is really ultimately pride. I know better. I know how this is going to happen. And that was at the root of what my behavior was. Friends, some of us are trying to get rid of behaviors that get us in setbacks all the time and you've never dealt with the root. You're trying to stop gossiping because you know it's wrong, but you're getting something out of it. You know you're cutting down people and you make them look really small. And you know why you do that? Because it's feeding some root in your life. You cannot stop viewing pornography. It's a behavior, maybe it's gotten you in a bit of a relational setback or whatever it might be in life, and you can't stop it. Why? Because at the root, you've got an intimacy deficit, and you're never dealing with it. You're just trying to modify your behavior. You've got to go to the root. Where is the source of your setback? Here's the third and last step. You have to change. Woo! Something to, if you want to come back from a reputational setback, there has to be measures of change. How did Peter change? It's found in verse 17 of chapter 21. Remember it said that Peter was hurt. Hurt. Proverbs would say the wounds of a friend heal. 
He grieved and he felt mourning over the pain that he had caused in the situation he was in. Now, if you've grown up in church, listen up for a few minutes because I did not get this for the longest time. The Bible talks about godly sorrow and it talks about ungodly repentance. Have you ever heard those terms in the Bible? It talks about that there's, there's a godly sorrow and there's an ungodly sorrow. And for years, I tried to figure out what does that mean? Well, ungodly sorrow is self-pity. That's the moral and the religious people. And the moral religious people will say things like this. Look at what my sin cost me. I mean, look what it cost me. Look at the consequences it's bringing into my life. That's a religious person. That's not a Christian. Christian looks at what they've done and they said, look at what my sin cost Christ. Look at how I'm hurting Jesus' heart. Some of you, that might be a new concept. How can you hurt God? How can you hurt Jesus' heart? I know every parent in the room knows what I mean. Parents, is there anything more painful than watching your children make decisions and take actions in life that are destroying them? Does that not hurt your heart? Have you ever been in that place with your children where you'd be like, I'd give my right arm if, they, if I could keep them from going there, wherever that, that there might be, because you love your children so deeply. How far would Jesus go because he loved you so deeply? He gave his entire life. So when he sees his children making decisions that are destructive and hurtful and ultimately going to topple them, it hurts him. Here's the difference. I used to do a, a lot of marriage counseling. I don't anymore, so don't email me. <laughs> because, because there are much better ones on staff and, and, and our church family, and I'm busy that I can't do it like I used to. But a part of me loved it. But I noticed patterns with, with marriage counseling. Inevitably, one spouse would call me first. Because usually there's one that's willing and one that's not. And here, I'm going to generalize, but I'm generally right when it comes to this generalization. Often, it would be the female in the relationship that would contact me first. Guys, I love you because I'm one of you. But pride is sometimes our biggest barrier to freedom. It's okay not to be okay. So here we are, a woman contacts me, married 15 years, she's had it, she's done. The way he treats me, he said he's changed, nothing has ever changed. My bags are packed, I'm coming to you as a last resort, which is always as a pastor, you're just like, oh, why didn't we come as a first or second resort? Because <laughs> there's a lot of pressure in the last, so work a miracle here, pastor. Here's the thing, with that type of ultimatum that I'm leaving, I know inevitably that week I'm gonna get a call from him because all of a sudden, he's motivated. All of a sudden, he's motivated to get help. And so you find that there's two types of husbands though. There's one that is motivated to get help because she's leaving. And he is feeling the pain of losing her, maybe the reputational pain of losing her, maybe the, with the family or the pain of nobody taking care of him or whatever it might be in life. Now, he's not motivated to change because of his wife's pain. He's motivated to change because of his pain. That's what you call self-pity. Ultimately, that person you can almost say with 100% consistency, they will change until the threat of leaving is gone. 
and then they slide right back into what it was. On the other side of it is occasionally you meet these people and there's this window, there's a threat. She's leaving and all of a sudden they are awakened, almost like smelling salts. They're awakened to the pain that they're causing their spouse and it breaks their heart for her, not him. Do you see the difference? The difference is the difference between heaven and hell. It's a massive difference. See, the pathway to repentance is to take responsibility. Stop the blame shifting. You want to get, repair your reputation? Stop blaming people who contributed to it. Own it. Take the log on your shoulder. Stop the blame shifting. Then find the root. Why is it that we behave in such a way that this keeps toppling? What is it that the behaviors? Let's get to the root of it. What's wrong there? And then true repentance is looking on your Lord and Savior Jesus and saying, I'm hurting him. It cost him everything to rescue me. And I keep throwing it back in his face. And you come to a place and that's where freedom is. It's not, that's not where perfection is. But that is where freedom is. And it's available to each of us in this room. So on August 6, I was in this room, sitting on the platform right over here. And there was 600 plus people in this room and another 500 people online watching on a Tuesday morning. Why? Because we were honoring Reverend Stuart Mulligan, who had pastored our church for 18 years. You know, it was incredible. And we are honoring a man who lived a life well and who passed from this life to the next with a good reputation. Watch this video clip from the funeral. And as we gather to celebrate the life of a great pastor, one who served this congregation for so many years, who blessed our souls every Sunday morning as he imparted the word of God in his unique fashion, we are ever grateful for the blessing he has been to all of us. And there will be those in heaven who will rise up and call him blessed because of his example and his leadership in this assembly. I learned the power of influence from Stuart Mulligan. He had a way of changing the tone. A modest man, a humble man, but a very strong and uh, influential man. Many are following Jesus today, both here on earth and many in heaven, because Stuart Mulligan was a faithful pastor. And, and there are some here because Stuart Mulligan was a mentor to you. I'm among them, pastors and church leaders who were encouraged, shaped, often intrigued, and definitely marked by him. Encouraging pastors was like breathing to him. One of the great gifts Stu had was that he never tried to be anything other than Stu Mulligan. I think it's why he suffered less stress than many others I know, because he never tried to be anything other than who he was. He was comfortable with, with who he was, right to the very end. And I think that's why people felt so comfortable with him. Right? He was himself, and so people felt like they could be themselves too. In fact, come to think of it, 
Other than me, I don't know anybody who didn't like Stu Mulligan. The Apostle John said, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And Paul affirms to Timothy, the solid foundation of God stands sure, having this seal or inscription, the Lord knows those that are his. For Stuart, the race has been run. He is home safe and sound, but he will be missed. And we shall see him in the morning. And driving over this morning in my car, and I, I just said, Lord, probably some nice things are going to be said about me today, but you and I know better, don't we? <laughs> but for the grace of God, I am here this morning and to look back with fondness in all those wonderful days we have had together. So I'm sitting here, yeah, yeah. Sitting on the platform and I'm watching just this parade of people I, I respect so much. Reverend Gordon Upton, you don't need to know any of these people by name and that's okay because some of you are online, some of you are newer, and you're just like, I don't know barely anyone on that screen. Reverend Gordon Upton, uh, Charles Yates was mentioned in that sermon uh, message by someone on the platform who was a dear friend of mine for years. I, I, I see people like Arthur Windsor, our own pastor Keith Smith, even Dr. Van Johnson, <laughs> Craig Burton, just people I respect. I respect them so much. And I went home to Shelley because I felt the weight. I just, Stuart Mulligan, he would never want you to think he was a perfect guy. And I loved his phrase there at the end as his last Sunday here at Agent Court as this lead pastor. And he said, you know, people are going to say a lot of nice things about me, but you and I know better. Such humility. That was Stuart Mulligan, a great leader, great pastor. And he finished his race well. And I went home to Shelley and I just said, you know, Shelley, I'm just so challenged. We need a generation of people who decide to finish well. We that make a decision, decide to finish well. And not so that their reputation is glowing, but Jesus is glorified through their life. Jesus is lifted up that when they're done, people are rising up and saying, blessed, blessed. He was a real deal. He wasn't perfect. Every one of those men I just mentioned, every one of them have had to go through that point where they take the responsibility, where they get to the source of where it's at, where they truly repent and change every one of them. And you know, the longer you live, you realize you do it more than once. But friends, what would it look like if there was a generation of people that decided, I will finish well? Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. You choose. You get to choose. Stuart Mulligan, if you knew him, he grew up in circumstances and he called it, in his own words, wild living. And Jesus got a hold of him and changed him from the inside out. And some of you are here because of him. Great leader, great preacher and teacher, incredible pastor. I said to Shelley when, when I heard Pastor Mulligan had passed away, I said, you know, one of the saddest things is we've just lost one of the best examples of what being a real pastor is. 
And you know, that was choices he made over his lifetime. And you get to choose the same, friends. So why not finish well? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, God, that we don't have to go around protecting our reputations, God. But I do pray for everyone under the sound of my voice right now that they would take hold and protect their integrity. They would protect their integrity, that they would live an integrated life, God. Lord, that they would just try to center that church life around you, not around religion or just anything, but around you. They would center their home life around you, God, and their relationships and those that they are connected to around you. That they would center their work life around the person of Jesus Christ. That they would center their friend life around you, God. Help them, God. And I pray, Lord, that I know that the enemy tried to sift Peter, but you stood in the gap, Jesus. And I know the enemy would love to sift some of your beloved in this room and online. And I pray, Jesus, would you stand in the gap? Would you guard them and protect them? And Lord, we pray that, I pray, God, that your people would choose, choose you over whatever it is that they are tempted with in this life. God, would you forgive us for the moments that we miss the mark? Would you provide us grace and insight into why our appetite leans that way? God, we don't want to hurt your heart. We know how much it costs to rescue us. We love you. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.